Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's plenty of developments on the attacks Sunday in Sri Lanka. ISIS claimed responsibility for the attacks via their news agency, and Sri Lanka's prime minister and defense minister say preliminary investigations indicate the bombings were a retaliation for the attacks on mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. With me is Shantha Pray. Waramantha. I messed it up a little bit there. <laughs> Let me say it. It's Shanta Premavardhana. Shanta Premavardhana. And uh, he's a pastor and he's an interfaith leader who is currently president of the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, is obviously originally from Sri Lanka. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here with you. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, I think we're all getting a crash course in the religions of Sri Lanka. Um, can you tell us about the Christian community, where it came from, and a little about um, how they interact with the other faiths? Hmm. Uh, most recent, I mean, the, for five centuries, Sri Lanka was under colonial rule. Uh, Portuguese first, with that came Catholicism. And then the Dutch, so Dutch Reformed churches came. Ah. And then uh, the British, which meant that the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Methodist, Baptists, they all came after that. So that, that's, the, that's the kind of makeup of the Christian community. So uh, it's at least five centuries uh, old in Sri Lanka, but there are indications that that could go back 600 uh, to 600 uh, A.D., now and so there's the factions within the Christian community and in, in yes, indeed I mean like anywhere else uh, you have the uh, denominational uh, differences that are there that which the colonial people brought to us which really don't have much uh, salience in Sri Lanka because those fights are European fights not uh, not necessarily <laughs> Sri Lankan ones well how did the um the Buddhist community is the dominant religious community in Sri Lanka. Do they look at Christianity as um, an in, uh, as an import from the colonial era? Indeed, and, and that's part of the struggle that we've had uh, during that 453 years of colonialism, which is one of the longest uh, in uh, in the world. Um, during that time, Buddhism uh, was decimated. Uh, it was um, uh, the Sinhala culture uh, was attacked, and so when independence came in 1948, the, the the immediate backlash was to go to a Sinhala Buddhist nationalism. So this was an ethno-religious conflation, which uh, turned out to be rather a lethal mix. This is one of the reasons why uh, we had uh, a 26-year-long war uh, with, a, uh, with a Tamil militant group that arose uh, as a result of the discrimination that the Tamil community faced. And the Tamils are of uh, mixed faith background. Correct. They are mostly Hindu, uh, but uh, Christians are Sinhalese and Tamils. Most Sinhalese are Buddhists. Uh, and uh, Muslims are a specific, um, often thought about as a, their own ethnic group. They, they are a mixture of various ethnicities that Islam came to Sri Lanka through Arab traders mostly. Um, but that's, you think about Muslims as both an ethnicity and a religion. On the ground, do the different faith communities get along? 
Indeed. We've got along for a very long time. Uh, and uh, occasionally we've had incursions. We had, uh, we had violence, um, conflicts. Um, over the period of uh, since uh, independence, we've not had, I mean, we've not had any serious problems because Sri Lanka guarantees religious freedom for all, although it gives prime of place to Buddhism. So here's what happened. In 1980s, you had uh, a movement of Christian missionaries uh, who would come to Sri Lanka and would establish what are called evangelical or free churches uh, that uh, many Buddhists uh, argued and challenged that they were using uh, fraudulent means for conversion. That created a conflict. Occasionally, you would find Buddhist mobs that would go and attack these churches or kill pastors or, you know, do things like that. Uh, that uh, period lasted uh, from somewhere, somewhere in the 80s until about the 2000s. But more recently, uh, there has been worry about Muslims and the growth of Muslim uh, Islamic conservatism. Uh, and because of that, um, just last year, we had uh, several attacks on Muslim villages uh, by Buddhist mobs because there's a strain of rather virulent Buddhist violent extremism that has arisen in the country. Now, so th this sounds pretty tense. It sounds like this would be a place where it would be um, ripe for a, play a group like ISIS. Uh, indeed, uh, the tension uh, is something that we lived with for the 26 years of war. <coughs> Thankfully, we've had 10 years of peace. Uh, in fact, we are coming right up on the anniversary on May 9th of 10 years. And uh, so during that period, there have been very little um, conflict except for the uh, the the rise of the Buddhist violent extremist groups uh, that have attacked Muslim communities, not so much Christians during this period. Um, so, is there um, is there active interreligious dialogue efforts that go on in Sri Lanka that are uh, successful? Yes, indeed, there are uh, lots of interreligious dialogue work going on. In fact, there are many organizations that promote interreligious dialogue. And religious leaders themselves uh, come together for conversation and relationship building. Your question, are they successful, is an interesting one. Uh, and, and that is because uh, for the longest time, and I've been involved in interreligious dialogue around the world for a long time, um, much of the interreligious dialogue happens at a rarefied atmosphere where religious leaders come together and have deep uh, conversations about uh, various points of theological connection. Those are very good and helpful, except that they don't always translate to what's going on in the ground. And so how successful are they is a, uh, is a question. What is interesting is the rising of a new grassroots movement uh, of uh, what is called interfaith peacemaker teams that where, where Buddhists, Christians, Muslims, and Hindus come together in villages where they learn how to collaborate with each other 
on issues that ar- arise directly from the ground. All right. So that sounds very promising. Um, but at the same time, you just need a handful of people who want to go the other direction and and all your efforts are shot, basically. And uh, so is there a way, you know, are we ever going to succeed with this? We're watching the whole planet go through virtually the same thing uh, in at the same time. Yeah, unfortunately, you're right about that. And that, you know, in this uh, situation... Uh, it was apparently a very small group of people who created all of this havoc. Um, and so as long as there are crazy people in this world who would uh, who would want to do that, there's really very little ways we have of stopping that. However, the large numbers of the, the, the mainstream of all our religions uh, have theologies, I use the word advisedly. Uh, Buddhists don't have a theology, but a philosophy, for example. However, uh, they ha- their, their philosophies have to do with exclusivity and superiority. Those two uh, aspects come into play, and therefore you don't want to re- uh, create relationships with others because, after all, if my way is the only right way, why would I relate to you? Or why my way is superior than yours, why would I relate to you? Deconstructing that kind of what we call top-down or received theology is the primary work that we are now engaged in doing and lifting up a ground-up or a contextual theology, which really begins our work with the real questions that real people ask in their communities. That's If that is the starting point, then Muslims and Hindus and Christians and Buddhists can actually work together on things that matter. I'm talking with Shantha Premawarthana, and he is a pastor and interfaith leader who's currently president of the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. He's originally from Sri Lanka. I, it, is there a problem politically that we um, need to address? As long and if the theological gets addressed, that uh, that's significant. But we seem to be mobilizing people uh, by their faith nowadays. Uh, you know, our president's doing it, the president of India, the, you know, the leaders in Sri Lanka do it. The, uh, every, everyone does this. And it's, it seems to have a really negative effect. Well, authoritarian leaders have discovered the power of religion. Um, th- that's uh, really what's going on. I think we need to be sure that we, uh, all of us on on the more uh, mainstream middle, uh, begin to understand that religion has a great deal of power because they are organized people. They meet once a week and in small groups of 20 or 20,000 and one person gets up in front of them and says, this is how you should behave or how you should live and they collect money. All of those are ingredients that go to build power. So the power of the religious community should not be underestimated. And authoritarian leaders today are are making use of that. We who are on the other side, we who want peace and want to work for justice, have rarely uh, taken that peace into serious consideration. If 
And that's because religions are divided all over the place. And because religions are divided, that only benefits the authoritarian leaders. If we come together, then we don't allow uh, for that kind of injustice to take place in our world. Right now, there it seems like every time there is some attack like this, uh, in this country, the Christian right looks at this and says, look, Christians are under the attack all over the world. We are the persecuted ones. And there seems to be a persecution rivalry among the religions that they are all the persecuted ones. Exactly. Uh, and, and to some extent, it's true. I mean, there, there are certainly people getting attacked on sectarian bases all over the planet for, and with all, in all different religions. Um, how do you get away from the, the negative aspects of that persecution complex? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, it is true that uh, that Christians are being persecuted around the world, and that is happening primarily in places where Christians are in the minority. Uh, but it is also true that Muslims and other religious people, Buddhists, Hindus, all of them, uh, Jews, uh, are being attacked. Anti-Semitism is a rising phenomenon in in the world, as well as Islamophobia. So, but but the question you ask about what's going on in the U.S. with the uh, with the fascination about uh, Christian persecution, uh, I, I think you had to be careful to nuance that by helping people understand that the Christian majority in the United States are in no way a persecuted group of people. We are the ones who have the power. I speak myself as a Christian, we are the ones who have power in this country. But there are Christians in different parts of the world who don't have that and are therefore persecuted. We should uh, take particular care not to confuse the two things. And not just Christians, but Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, all of those groups that cannot express their religious freedom in a way that is uh, free and just in their communities, we need to we need to be particularly conscious of that question. So, is there some way that all these different faiths can speak together when something happens to any one of them? It, it seems like there almost needs to be a constant unified voice instead of, um, you know, you have to apologize for what your faith group did or whatever. It kind of goes on. I think it is uh, very important to recognize that uh, this attack was done by a small group of radical Muslims. They are not Muslims. They are people who do this, who, who are not submitting themselves to God, which is what Muslim stands for are not really Muslims in, in, in some sense of the word. But the, but the majority of the Muslim community stands together with all of the others, the Christians, the Hindus, the Buddhists, in condemning these and coming together and, and working together to find the right solution. So, for example, uh, in Sri Lanka, we had uh, religious leaders coming out and speaking out, asking people to... Uh, to be calm in this situation, not to take the law into their own hands, which some people would want to do, and uh, then calling on the government, uh, holding the government accountable for the uh, for the lapse uh, that uh, that they apparently had 
uh, adequate information about this happening 10 days ago and some say even in january they had this kind of information uh, going to them and didn't do anything about it therefore the government needs to be held accountable it's the religious leaders who ought to take the primary responsibility for doing that what do you make of the the connection with um uh Christ Church and the and the the con, the the attacks on the mosques in New Zealand is this if it, if these people have been planning this a long time apparently because it was very well coordinated and had so many targets and uh, they, this was kind of uh, an opportunistic sounding claim that this is a retaliation for this indeed as you said uh, various news outlets as well as the Sri Lankan government have claimed that uh, New Zealand connection that this is retaliation for that um perhaps it is but as you said just now uh it's more opportunist opportunistic i would i would say by the way we should all understand uh, what we are doing right now is speculating about what's going on uh, we and i don't want to do that but but the but we have few facts at this moment what we what we do know is this that that ISIS may be uh trying to get a foothold on Asian countries and this goes all the way from Afghanistan Pakistan India Bangladesh <coughs> to Sri Lanka uh, there has been a growing wahhabism uh, in Sri Lanka uh, that is pretty obvious in terms of people's piety and women's dress uh, and and so on in Sri Lanka for the past several years so the possibility that isis is trying to get a foothold in sri lanka is not far fetched but the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, that they have been working at this for much longer than march 15th uh, when the christchurch bombing i mean uh, the shooting took place uh, so this the the connection may be more opportunistic than we think i think that 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 uh, isis or other international groups trying to get a foothold uh, has a longer history than that well we'll keep our eye on the news and we'll see about the developments and thanks very much for joining us shantha premawarthana and he's a pastor and interfaith leader who's currently president of omnia institute for contextual leadership originally from sri lanka thanks for joining us and uh, we'll talk again soon thank you jerome you're welcome Coming up after the break we are going to talk about the crisis in recycling. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm sure you've heard about the recycling crisis. It's making us all think about doing better. 
But the head of the Solid Waste Association of North America says most of us are either aspirational recyclers or they're confused recyclers. WBEZ's Monica Eng has been on the case for Curious City, and we're going to suss out what is going on with recycling uh, for the rest of the program. How are you, Monica? I'm all right. Uh, a little less confused these days, but, uh, you know, still looking for answers. So we've been hearing recently in the last since last year about the problems caused by China putting severe limits on the kind of plastics and uh, materials they're going to accept these days. We've been recycling with China for 30 years, and now they're saying no. Um, did, did you talk to people about this, our waste haulers? I did. For Curious City, I recently toured alleys with uh, officials from Waste Management Illinois and officials from Chicago Streets and Santa. And I said, you know, how is this uh, this China situation affecting us? And here's what Tom Vujovic of Waste Management Illinois told me. China's been really deliberate in terms of really tightening the quality standards of what's acceptable to them from a commodity standpoint. Uh, historically, you can send bales of commodities there with anywhere from 5 to 12% contamination, which has somewhat been kind of the industry norm and standard. Um, you know, as most recently as last year, that's been cut down to half a percent, uh, even up to a couple percent, depending on what uh, Asian mill you go to. Um, so when if the national contamination average is 25% and you're trying to make a 99.5% pure commodity, it's almost unrealistic, right? So it's not just an impact to Chicago or to where we were earlier today. It's an impact to the industry, and it's a challenge. And so as a result, the operational costs have gone up. We've added more people. We've slowed lines down um, just to make sure that we, we get the full recovery of the commodities and make sure we pull out as many contaminants as we could. So, so that impact has been really global. Yeah. So that was Tom Vujovic of Waste Management, and you heard the wind. We were in a windy alley that day, uh, but a gorgeous day. And, um, and you know, so he says that the costs have gone up to, to actually process this stuff if they want to get it, you know, ready for um, export. So if the costs are going up, and does the city make less in the recycling program? I mean, there's cities around the country that are ditching their recycling programs because they, it's just uh, not worth their time and effort anymore. Yeah, and so that's what I asked um, Chris Sove, who's the head of recycling at the Department of Streets and Sanitation here in Chicago. I'm like, oh, well, so are we not making as much money? And he, he set me straight. Here's what he said. The, the idea of our recycling program generating a ton of revenue or a windfall of revenue it's just never that's never been the case right it's always been a program that has cost the city money the message really to residents would be to be even more diligent about what they're putting in there and and yeah seeking out the the, the, the our website seeking out the right information on on what you should be including and absolutely when in doubt about whether it goes in don't put it in the blue one put it in your black cart and that was Chris Sove of the Streets and Sanitation Department. Uh, so you were out there with these guys in the alleys learning stuff about how to get better at this. Uh, were there things that surprised you and that um, you you figured out? Yeah, people are pigs. They like <laughs> they they put dog poop, they put dirty diapers, they put half gallons full of milk in in the recycling box, and it. Are it you was... sure they're just not confused recyclers, Monica? <laughs> I, I hope they're confused and not just jerks. Um, but also, it, it sounds like you came away convinced jerks. Well, I mean, I was thinking, oh, it's got to be the guys who are collecting it. They're 
they're just not doing it right. And and I think, you know, there's room for some of that. But boy, there was a lot of inappropriate stuff in there. Um, but I also had heard or been confused about this pizza box thing. A lot of people say you can't recycle a pizza box. But Tom Vujovic actually uh, went and pulled one out of the garbage. And here's what he told us. All right, let's talk pizza boxes. So looks like clean cardboard, right? Uh, and cardboard is definitely acceptable within the program. It's, uh, it's a great commodity to recover and uh, to, to sell as well. Uh, what makes this a problem is this. There's pizza in here, and obviously it's, it's not a recyclable commodity. That should be thrown in the trash. Typically, most pizza places will put inserts in here to collect the grease, and this too should be discarded just because of the grease. Uh, remember, uh, I said earlier, fiber, whether it's cardboard or newspaper, when it's wet or oily or greasy, it's really not pulpable at the mill or recoverable, so it's trash. Now, what are we left with? We're left with really nice, clean cardboard. These little few spots, no oh, big deal. Okay, so Nice piece of cardboard, take it all day long. So that was Tom Vujovic of Waste Management Illinois straightening us out on pizza boxes. And I think every couple, every habitat uh, has arguments <laughs> about what to throw and what not to throw in the recycling. And, you know, my, I want to throw all the plastic. If I see the little signature mm-hmm. on it, I want to throw all the plastic in there because I don't know what the numbers mean. My wife continually tells me what the numbers mean. I cannot learn that. But there are, I mean, everybody's got them. Some For some people, it's pizza boxes. For other people, it's something else. There are constant fights in houses about what, uh, what can be recycled. And, you know, another thing people talk about is, okay, you go to Starbucks. Well, here at BZ, I really like to use re- reusable mugs. But some people go out and get their coffee, their iced coffee or their hot coffee. And they're like, all right, what do I do with this? Um, but we learned that if it's hot coffee, you can recycle that sleeve, that cardboard sleeve. You can recycle the top, but not the cup here, not in our program, not the hot cup. But if you get iced coffee, you can recycle the lid. You can recycle that plastic cup, not the straw. Try drinking your iced coffee without the straw. Um, but there are all, all sorts of confusion around that. All right. So uh, <laughs> what about peanut butter jars? Well, yeah, you've heard people say, oh, there's a little bit of peanut butter stuck in the jar. I might as well throw it in the garbage because that's not going to be recycled. Well, here's, here's what Vujovic told us about food in, you know, a little bit of food, a little bit of residue left in those food jars. Where these commodities end up going, there's a wash cycle within that process. And so it's not as impactful if there's a little bit of residual product within these containers. So we we often get asked the question, do we put the lids on? Do we put the caps on bottles? Do we not? The answer is, yeah, you do. We, We prefer that you put the caps on the bottles so that they stay with the plastic. Um, because of the small cap sizes, sometimes these end up in the glass stream and they contaminate the glass. All right, so that's no wonder people are confused. It's it, people have been arguing about caps all the time, and mm-hmm. there's probably different rules in different places. Uh, the peanut butter seems incongruous to um, to the whole "let's clean up the mm-hmm. waste stream" thing. Uh, I and then there are other it's... residues that that I'm hearing from our next guest that actually you don't want to have in there. So it's confusing, and people need to get educated. So we thought we'd kind of lift up the conversation and think, you know, more beyond just cleaning our waste stream, but reducing the things in the waste stream and have a conversation about uh, what a vision of recycling would be that would be really community-based and community-oriented. And Kay Kay McKean has been doing it for 30 years. She is the founder and executive 
Executive Director of School and Community Assistance for Recycling and Composting Education, uh, known for its acronym SCARES, and it is in Glen Ellen, but operates in lots of different uh, adjoining suburbs, uh, recycling extravaganzas in 17 different communities around Mm -hmm. Glen Ellen. And Kay McKean, thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, I'm very excited to be here. And you were Recycler of the Year in 2016. That's all right. I think a couple of times, yeah. Uh, tell us about how Scarce got started and why your community just decided to just start doing this thing themselves. I'll tell you, I think a lot of things in my life just came together. Grandma's who always reused, and my aunt was head of Girl Scouts in Kentucky, and a lot of things said don't waste. And my parents didn't waste anything, and so we worked really hard. We worked really hard to um, bring something to the community. Some friends, there were six of us, and we built Wheaton's Recycling Center. And then people started saying, what about books and what about this? So they really, the residents brought us ideas that we could make better. And you're doing a phenomenal thing with school books. Explain what Scarce does with school books. Is I don't think, I mean, we used to all recognize that phone books were a terrible thing in the waste stream. Um, and think of school books. Right. So paperback books, hardcover books. Schools, a lot of times when they get a new book, They throw out the books. Getting books recycled, truly recycled, is difficult. There aren't that many companies who cut off the bindings. And so we started a lot of the books that schools were not needing looked mighty good to me. So we started the book rescue. Teachers have chosen over 7 million books, hardcover, paperback, reference books. It's amazing. And so we have about 80,000 books for teachers to come. And they do. Every single day, teachers come and look at books. Now, and explain what you've been doing. You were telling me that uh, you have so many books, you are doing hurricane relief with them, basically. Yes, we are working with – there's been a lot of uh, horrible environmental, right, natural disasters. Mm-hmm. So we've been lucky to work with North Carolina after Hurricane Florence and Hurricane Michael in Florida. And we had 23 tornadoes here in central Illinois the first weekend of December. So we've been sending thousands of books to those communities. So you're sending replacement books, basically, for the ones that they had. Yes, and also kind of like relief books, like any child would like to get a storybook. If your house has been damaged and the roof is off and rain came in, just to have a book. So gently used, sometimes new books, we get them to be reused. So that's an amazing thing, but you've also – and that takes up a lot of your warehouse, it looks like. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But you're you're a – conduit for musical instruments. Uh, You're doing all sorts of other, you're doing Brita filters, you're doing uh, a full gamut of of things. Furniture for schools, desks for students, chairs for students, conference tables, office tables, office desks, chairs. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think about this and I think, well, every community should be reusing and re-looping they should have a conduit for this. Uh, this is our dream. This is our exact dream. I mean, John. a lot more people go to Goodwill now and use that as a conduit, but um, this is uh, – it seems like it's a lack of leadership that, that communities don't um, make a scarce-like unit. I think everybody's so busy in our communities truly that we need we need a plan. I would love to have a plan. We're only getting a tip of the iceberg of the books that could be reused. Can you imagine how many – more um, literacy at the laundromat programs, we could start with more volunteers and with more books. We're just a tiny part of the solution. If we had more of our places, oh my goodness, what we could do. 
you know, it's um, interesting that we're kind of having to rethink this now with the China not accepting our waste after 30 years. We've got to figure out for ourselves how to close the loop. We, yes. we should be closing the loop in a, in a million different ways. We work really hard to talk about reducing, like before you buy it. Is this something – how much packaging is there? Is this something that is a quality product that will last long? Because a lot of times if you buy something very inexpensive, it's not going to last. So how you buy, how you purchase in the first place, does a banana need to be in a styrofoam tray with shrink wrap, one banana? I don't think so. So you know, before you buy it, is it something you want to bring home? And then if you are going to buy something, buy something that is truly reusable – truly recyclable or compostable, which would be the best. And when you guys talk about pizza boxes, even if you're an educated recycler and you put the part of the pizza box in that has no grease, your neighbor may see you put in a pizza box and you recycle them and they go, oh, pizza boxes are recyclable. They throw it in there with the half a pizza not eaten and that little white Barbie table. So an educated person kind of could be a role model, but also people don't understand the the steps the person has taken to put it in the recycling bin the right way. Yeah, that's a it's a very good point. I think there is a lot of confusion about that. And that's what I heard, you know. So even though uh, Tom Vujovic says that, that the pizza boxes are perfectly recyclable, Chris Sove at Streets and Sanitation says, no, we don't like to tell people they're recyclable because people won't recycle <laughs> right. them right. So they're the, confused recyclers themselves, right, the guys say, who are at the top. Well, they say that people can't <laughs> handle nuance. Right. And, and just as they were saying about the residue, you know, okay, so you can have a little bit of peanut butter. And so I thought that maybe you can also have a little bit of lotion or shampoo at the bottom of your, what I thought was a recyclable shampoo bottle, but you set me straight on that. Well, and just like you were talking with the numbers of the recycling symbol, just because a plastic has the recycling symbol does not mean it's recyclable. It is just telling you what type of plastic it is. So all those hand lotion tubes or toothpaste tubes, no tubes are recyclable in any program right now. So it could have a triangle, could have a number, it could be filled with hand lotion that would be very difficult to get out, but it's not recyclable. Somebody's got to fix the number system. Yes, yeah. sir. I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, we're going to come back. We're going to take a few phone calls about recycling, answer some questions about recycling. The number is 312-923-9239, 312-923-WBEZ. And we're talking with Kay McKean. She's the founder and executive director of Scarce School and Community Assistance for Recycling and Composting Education. They're in Glen Ellen, and they take books, they take musical instruments, they recycle as much as they can. And we'll be back after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're talking about recycling with Kay McKean, founder and executive director of School and Community Assistance for Recycling and Composting Education, known as SCARCE. You can check out their website. They've got all sorts of stuff there that will tell you information about recycling. Monica Ng is here, WBEZ reporter and Worldview's 
food, health, and uh, culture contributor. Now, um, you were telling us, we're going to take a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. So you've got a master list on your website at Scarce? Yes. We've worked really hard. We called haulers. We called sorting facilities and say, what's your biggest problem? What don't you want? So let's hear them. Oh, diapers. They do not want disposable diapers in the recycling. They do not want syringes. In your recycling, very dangerous for their sorters. That'll contaminate now, a whole load and stop the I, assembly line, too. I got to admit, I went down the syringes rat hole on your website, and there's like syri- there's a clippers that people use to clip the needles, and then you can kind of throw them, throw the other things out, and uh, there's so a some, whole universe place. Yeah, there's a lot on syringes, but a lot of medical professional fo- folks will tell you not to use the clippers because the needles pop out. And they can poke you in the eye. They have poked people in the eye. And if you've already got diabetes, you don't need a little poke that could give you an infection. If you're an older person, you might not clip it very well. There's a lot of reasons. So what's the right thing to do with syringes? So really, you need a a very heavy-duty plastic container, like a thick laundry soap plastic container. Put the syringes in it. Duct tape it. Duct tape the lid so it doesn't come off. And then there are places to take your syringes. We have a new program in DuPage County with our sheriff for people to drop off syringes and EpiPens. We're very excited about it. I mean, you just did your first effort in Wheaton and got how many pounds? 428 pounds. That's amazing. Sheriff Jim Mendrick, he is so concerned about the opioid issues and people reusing needles to get started on drugs. We're concerned about it for the haulers and the recyclers. And so together we did this project. And frankly, I knew people would come, but I didn't know how much they would bring. And people brought us so many containers. They've been saving them for years because they didn't know how to properly get rid of them. And some people know that they're dangerous and don't want to hurt anybody. Sure. So very conscientious people. We filled that sheriff's van in, te- in one hour. Wow. We filled it two times in three hours. That's a whole story in itself. Right. I've also heard hoses, Christmas lights, keep them out. The uh, tangling things like um, your hangers, your hang- yeah. clothing, hangers, ribbons. Keep it all out. Keep it all out. If it's not on the list, it doesn't go in the recycling bin. All right. Let's get to a few phone calls. 312-923-9239. Mark, you're on WBEZ. Yeah, hi there. Um, I just had a, a common suggestion uh, we went on vacation in the Smoky Mountains uh, last year, and they uh, the the city we went to was called Sevierwood, which, which is next to the Smoky Mountains. This is like Dolly Parton's hometown. Massive tourist trap. Uh, we rented a, a a cabin, no recycling. We looked around town, just the regular garbage, no recycling. Um, we just saw garbage cans everywhere. Uh, no evidence of of what to do with recyclables. Then I, I, I checked on, on the municipality's website, and it's a something called a single stream, single stream with no other options at all, where you, you throw everything in the garbage, and the facility uh, for this county or city will pick everything apart. And it seems to me that's sort of a, I don't know if that could be scaled up to a place like Chicago, but, you know... The, this the struggle seems to be what to put in the blue bin and what to put in the black bin. Right. What? What? Yeah. Kay, what does that sound like? That sounds bogus. That sounds terrible. It? it just sounds terrible. And I've a heard recipe that recipe for contamination for oh, sure. Oh my goodness! And danger, dangerous. You know. So there's bathroom things that you wouldn't want people sorting through, right? So it seems totally dangerous and very expensive. 
Can we go back to sorting? Would that end our con- contamination problems? You and mean make three, us th- three separate things like glass, plastic, paper? Yeah, I want to do that. That would be great. That would be super. So, I call it boutique recycling. And there are places in the country that do this. Yes, there are. And if you go to the North Park Nature Center, for instance, they have sorted recycling. The Resource Center does it. All right. Um, did, did we make a mistake with this whole single stream, uh, single stream thing? I, I fought the single stream. Stream has fin- single stream <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I fought it. I called haulers. I called cities. I said, please don't do this. You can't get glass out of paper and cardboard. There's magnets for metal, but you can't get glass out. Let's go to another call. JD, you're on WBEZ. Katie, I'm sorry. Oh, hi. This is Katie from Uptown. I'm calling because I was hoping I'm back uh, away from Colorado, back to Chicago. In it, I am committed to recycling in my home. But when I go to a business, I am just heartbroken to learn that they are not doing the same. Um, an example was I was at a Cubs game the other day. Afterwards, went out for a beer. I could not throw that can of beer in the garbage can. And I asked the staff, do you recycle? And they said no. I was hoping, is there some way to link a business license or a liquor license or something like that in Chicago to a recycling plan? It's a really good question. I don't know if our municipal code, it sounds like our municipal code does not require businesses to do it. I should say Lori Lightfoot said one of the first things she's going to do is restart the Department of Environment, and she is soliciting ideas uh, for her new administration. And some organizations, some companies actually get a bonus, if you will, from a community, from a city, from a county, if they will enact some of these recycling programs so they're part of the solution, they can join the rest of the community. So they'll get um, work orders go through faster or licenses go through faster. There are some bonuses that you can help a company. And I'll tell you, some of our sports sporting centers are doing a great job with little motivational steps that they can do. Um, I thought Lollapalooza, when they gave away a T-shirt, if you brought, if you cleaned up a bag of litter after Lollapalooza. Same with Riot Olympic, Fest, yeah. yeah. Then you got a T-shirt. I think those are good things to do. Just a little bit of a bonus. Let's go to another call. Uh, Jane in Rosemont, you're on WBEZ. Hello. Um, thanks for taking my question. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, we, I live in an apartment building. There's six units in my building, and um, we don't have a recycling bin, but my neighboring building has. So I use theirs since I read somewhere that uh, recycling bins are property of city of Chicago, so you can use it even if, it's, you know, if it doesn't belong to your building. All right. Are you in the city or are you in Rosemont? I thought you were in Rosemont. Um, I live by Rosemont, but my address is in Chicago. All right. Tell her what's going on in Chicago, Monica. Well, um, I was told by Streets and Sanitation that as part of the municipal code, now uh, buildings that aren't served by Streets and Sanitation, those are buildings that are three flats and above, must contract with a recycler. If your landlord has not done that, you can rat them out. Uh, There have been some cases where the landlords were retaliatory toward tenants who told on them for not having contracted with a recycler, but it is required. All right. There you go, Jane. Uh, Now, I, you know, I live in Arlington Heights, a little suburb, and there is a downtown full of restaurants and everything. They all use different, they all contract with a different garbage company to take their stuff away. None of them recycle. None of them are required to recycle. They would have to pay extra for it. Uh, is that uh, is that normal? No, that's not normal. Yes, it's normal that cities have multiple contracts, multiple companies who are licensed to do hauling. 
Um, in the city of Wheaton, if you have a license to haul garbage, you must offer recycling to those businesses. So we have lots of our restaurants who have full recycling um, in their restaurant, you know, for their their beer bottles or wine bottles, their aluminum cans, absolutely. You have to make sure you're working with a hauler who is licensed to do both. Um, you've been doing recycling extravaganzas. Can you tell me about these uh, events that you're doing in 17 communities now? This this year, I think it's going to be 19 in DuPage County alone, but we help a lot of towns. So River Forest does it and Will County does it. And it's a Saturday morning, kind of a drive-through opportunity to drop off all kinds of things that first could be reused. Our first goal is getting things reused. Sports equipment, if you're working in something like that, our book project, paper shredding, all drive-through get things dropped off. Very simple, very fast. That's how we did the syringe program. So on that Saturday, we had paper shredding, we had paint, we had mercury thermometers and thermostats and barometers, and then we had the um, syringe project. So four things in one parking lot. It makes your time valuable. You can go through, get a lot done in one time. And so we're offering those. Every city chooses what they want to collect but every weekend, this weekend there's two. There's one in Glen Ellen and one in Glendale Heights. So people have a lot of opportunities. All right. So these should be in every community all oh, the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I should note on paper shredding, are you able to recycle that paper? Because the city tells me if you ever put shredded paper in the recycling program, it contaminates the load. Yes. So not in your recycling bin. Shredded paper is on that big list of ours. No shredded paper. But when you bring it to a shredding event... And you educate people, no rubber bands, no plastic of any kind, no vinyl checkbook holders. Mm. We can get that paper recycled. Yes. Oh, great. All right. Let's try to zip through a couple calls. Marcella, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. And congratulations on the efforts that you're doing. It's wonderful to hear what the, your organization is doing. Uh, I have a comment, and I really don't even, I don't even know how to ask this question, but my biggest issue is plastic bags in the suburbs. Uh, I know Chicago, they passed uh, the ordinance where you have to pay uh, a couple of cents per bag, per plastic bag. But in the suburbs, when I shop around in the grocery stores, I notice that, you know, they can, they can use easily two bags for three items. And I, I'm constantly saying I don't need plastic bags. So what's happening with that? Uh, what's, what's the next step? All right. Step? Let's bring our bags. Let's bring our bags to the grocery store. Everyone in Europe does this. Nobody gives you a bag. Mm-hmm. We can do this. Bring That's first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, then what? Uh, what? What do we do with plastic bags? Well, if you have a plastic bag, you, you need to return it to Jewel or whatever place Target. will collect mm-hmm. them. So they can be recycled, just not in municipal programs. Right. So take them and bring them there if you, if you need to. But if also, yeah, reusable bags. Then, and yeah. you can reuse them, too. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to Art. Art, you're on WBEZ. Hi. I'm a rabid recycler. What do I do with the clear plastic tape that holds cardboard cartons uh, together? I've been ripping it all, all off. Is that necessary? I was told by waste management that it, they're fine. A little bit of uh, plastic tape left on your box that's well broken down is not an issue. Thank you very much. Uh, Alyssa in Brookfield, you're on WBEZ. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, so my question has to do with electronics and batteries and where and how is the best place to um, recycle those items. Are you in the city of Chicago? 
Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm in Brookfield. This is a, bu- a suburb. So different suburbs. Real close to you, I think, is Burr Ridge, and they have a five-day-a-week, Monday through Friday drop-off. Many towns have at least one event a year for people to drop off electronics. Several of the stores that sell electronics, they have bring-back programs. So depending on where you bought the TV or whatever, different stores, um, Apt Electronics takes microwaves back. Kind of where you bought it, see if you can take it back there or see when your city has an electronic drop-off program for you. All right, let's go to Antonella. You're on WBEZ. Hi, um, I'm calling. I'm a business owner. I own a restaurant in Lincolnshire, and we do not recycle. And the reason we do not recycle is because the property management company does not provide us with the recycling bin. And so we try to recycle on our own, collecting cans and bottles and whatnot. And even though we would rinse stuff off, it would attract pests which would then create a whole other issue for us being a, a, a restaurant. We feel terrible about it. There's really not much else we can do because it's up to the property management to, to go ahead and create that contract with the recycling uh, Kay, uh, what company. You, what happens there? I've heard that story before, and we've actually been able to work with some property management companies, and we've saved them money. We've saved them money by setting up recycling bins for the businesses on their property. So if you talk to the other property renters, see if you can get them together to talk to the managers. We've actually saved money and set up recycling programs. Lisa, you're on WBEZ. Thank you. I just wanted to say that until two years ago, I was living in Sweden for six years. And when I first moved there, I found that, you know, there's this incredible sorting for recycling and it's all set up the infrastructure and it's really easy to do if the infrastructure exists. It is possible. It is possible. <laughs> when, you, when you see it, it's like, uh, why aren't we doing this? It's a no brainer, right? Um, now, for people who want more information, tell them about your website. So Scarce has a website. It's um, Scarce.org. Scarce.org. Thank you. And We try to keep it updated. There are so many amazing things happening right now that every time we find something new, a new opportunity, we get it on our website as fast as we can. And you can always give us a call, and we will do our best to find the information for you if we don't have it. And Scarce takes books, gently used books, musical instruments, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. There's a big list. Yes. Oh, you do the recycling of crayons. It's very big. We make it into our super crayons for special needs kids. We sure do. So, and you take volunteers. Oh, my goodness. Lots of volunteers are needed to help us. Yes, sir. Teachers have chosen about seven and a half million books since 1991. Wow. That's amazing. Now, uh, people can check out more at scarce.org. Kay McKean is the founder and executive director of School and Community Assistance for Recycling and Composting Education. Don't forget to compost. We're doing a little bit here at the station. Thanks, Monica Eng, for bringing us some recycling news there on Curious City and kind of getting us started on straightening this out. Thank you, Jerome. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.